In this episode, we'll cover the different types of flow, the equations that describe them, and how flow is measured. We will also cover the Bernoulli principle, the Venturi effect, and the Coanda effect. Flow is the volume of a fluid, that's either gas or liquid, that passes a point per unit time. So flow equals volume divided by time. In physiology, it's generally measured in litres or milliliters per minute. Flow can either be organised or disorganised. Organised flow is called laminar flow, as the fluid flows in orderly parallel sheets. All of the molecules are travelling in the same direction. This is the most efficient type of flow. When flowing through a pipe, the fastest flow is in the middle, as there's friction from the containing walls. The velocity, however, doesn't fall off evenly from the middle to the sides, but it rather falls off parabolically. Laminar flow can be calculated using the Hagen-Poisset equation. Here, flow is equal to the change in pressure times by pi times by the radius to the power of 4 divided by 8 times the length of the tube times the viscosity of the fluid. Flow is also equal to the change in pressure divided by the resistance to flow. This is analogous to Ohm's law in electricity. So the resistance can be shown to be 8 times the length of the tube times the viscosity of the fluid divided by pi times the radius to the power 4. As you can see from that equation, the radius plays the most important role in determining the resistance to flow. That is why a small increase in the gauge of a cannula can result in a massive increase in the amount of flow. A 22-gauge blue cannula is just 1.1 millimeters narrower than a 14-gauge orange one, but an orange can deliver fluid about 6.5 times faster than a little blue. The fact that length is important in this equation also shows why shorter peripheral cannulae are preferable to standard central lines in fluid resuscitation in emergencies. Disorganised flow is called turbulent flow. This is where the average movement of the fluid is in one direction, but there can be back currents and eddies and vortices within it. These extra directions of movement are wasted energy, and so turbulent flow is extremely inefficient. The eddies and vortices can also cause oscillations in the fluid or in the surrounding container. This can be heard as sound. An example of this is the wheeze heard during bronchospasm. The change in diameter of the airways causes an imbalance in kinetic energy and produces turbulent flow that wastes energy as the sound of wheezing. This dramatically increases the work of breathing on top of the already increased resistance to flow caused by the narrowing airways. The probability of having turbulent flow is calculated with the Reynolds number. The Reynolds number is equal to the velocity times the density times the diameter of the tube divided by the viscosity. A Reynolds number of over 2000 indicates that turbulent flow is likely to occur. Another rule of thumb is that flow is always turbulent at an orifice. An orifice is where the diameter of an opening is larger than the length of the tube. Turbulent flow has no real overarching equation to describe it. However, there are a few principles. Flow is proportional to the square root of the driving pressure, and turbulent flow is dependent on density rather than the viscosity of a fluid. This means that decreasing the density increases flow. 
This is why a low-density mixture such as heliox can be useful in upper airway obstruction and bronchospasm. So, now let's talk about those exam favourites, the Bernoulli principle and the Venturi effect. We'll also touch on the Coando effect. The Bernoulli principle is essentially a description of the conservation of energy. The assumption is that energy cannot be created or destroyed. Energy in a flowing system has two main forms. Kinetic, from the velocity and mass of the fluid, and potential energy, which is stored as a pressure differential. The sum of these two energies must always stay the same. So when fluid flows from a wide pipe into a narrow one, to maintain the same flow, so volume passing per unit time, the speed of the fluid must increase. However, as the total energy cannot change, some of the pressure potential energy needs to be changed for kinetic energy. This causes the fluid to have a lower pressure, but faster speed. The Venturi effect uses this principle to entrain air. As the pressure drop is constant and easily calculated, the amount of air that is entrained can be calculated. This effect is used in Venturi masks, which can deliver a constant concentration of oxygen for a given flow, as a known amount of air is entrained to dilute down the oxygen being delivered. Another, perhaps more interesting, use of this effect is in Venturi wine pourers. Here, the flow of the wine is used to entrain air, which causes rapid breathing of the wine, so you can enjoy your red right away. The Coanda effect just describes the tendency of a flowing fluid to follow the curved contours of a surface. This is because, as we heard before, flow is slower closer to surfaces due to friction. This drags a column of fluid towards that surface, so it flows around, hugging the wall. You can think of the column of air like a car. If the two left wheels of the car are turning slower, then the wheels on the opposite side, the right side, will overtake it, causing it to turn to the left. This is what happens to the air. Good. Now that we've covered the basic principles of flow, let's talk a bit about how we can measure it. We'll focus on the two most commonly used mechanisms, rotameters and the pneumotachograph. Rotameters are found commonly on traditional anaesthetic machines and also on the wall oxygen supply that you find on wards. They consist of a vertical tube and a bobbin or a ball. The walls of the tube are not parallel, however. They're arranged in a slight V-shape, with the diameter at the top being larger than the diameter at the bottom. This prevents sticking of the bobbin and also allows gas to flow past it. The sides are also coated in an anti-static material to further prevent sticking. Gas enters from the bottom and forces the bobbin upwards. The bobbin comes to rest when the force of gravity on it is equal to the force of the driving pressure of the gas. As the tube gets wider at the top, the gap between the bobbin and the wall, and thus the effective radius of the tube that the gas is flowing through, gets larger. So at lower flows, when the bobbin is low down, the radius is less than the effective length which is the height of the bobbin. Therefore the Reynolds number is smaller and the flow is laminar. At high flows, the effective radius is wider than the height of the bobbin. Therefore the opening is an orifice and the flow is turbulent. The pressure difference across the bobbin is always constant as this must always equal the weight of the bobbin. So this type of device is called a constant pressure variable orifice device. A little practical note if you're using bobbins, then the flow is measured from the top of the bobbin, but if you're using a ball, the flow is measured from the middle of the ball. The pneumotachograph is the instrument that is commonly used to measure flow in our anaesthetic circuits. 
It consists of a slight widening of a tube, which then has multiple small diameter tubes arranged in a mesh inside it. The initial widening causes the speed of the gas to decrease, and the splitting of the lumen into multiple smaller openings ensures that the flow becomes laminar. The mesh also has a known associated resistance, and so results in a pressure drop across it. This pressure can be measured using a pressure transducer, and flow can be calculated from our equation from earlier. Flow equals pressure divided by resistance. In this device, the pressure changes as the flow changes, but the orifice is constant throughout the device, so it is deemed a variable pressure, constant orifice device. The pneumatachograph that I've just described is called a Fleisch tube. There are other subtypes, and some have a mesh screen instead of multiple smaller tubes, but they all work on the same principle. One downside of pneumatachographs is that they can be prone to the buildup of condensation, which can alter the resistance to flow and lead to erroneous pressure differentials. Newer models tend to be slightly heated to prevent this. Another form of flow meter is the hot wire flow meter. This has two heated wires traversing the lumen of a tube. A current is passed through them and heat is generated, much like an old-fashioned filament light bulb. The gas flow cools these wires. As the resistance is linearly related to the temperature of the wires, the more the flow, the cooler the wires, and thus the lower the resistance. This resistance can be measured and calibrated to give us an estimate of flow. So, that's it for this episode. Today, you've learned that laminar flow is orderly and is governed by the Hagen-Posse equation, which is dependent on viscosity, and that turbulent flow is disordered and dependent on density. You now know that the Reynolds number is a predictor of turbulent flow, and you've learned about different types of flow meters. We've also gone over those exam favorites, the Bernoulli principle, the Venturi effect, and the Coander effect. Thanks so much for listening. If you've liked this episode, please feel free to subscribe through your podcast player of choice. You can also find all of these episodes online at planaprimary.co.uk. Remember, this entire series is going to be published absolutely free, so please share this with anyone who you think might find it useful. If you've got any questions, feedback, or just want to request a topic, feel free to email me at questions at planaprimary.co.uk, or you can leave a comment by this episode online.